You're listening to Wait, Am I an Adult Now? One of the only podcasts out there that interviews young millennials riding the squiggly line of life. We're your co-hosts, Shelby Wildgust and Savan Pichotto. And together, our mission is to inspire you with stories of millennials just like you who are paving their way in the new creative economy. Our guests are leading epic lives through entrepreneurship, artistry, charity, music, corporate leadership, and so much more. Are you ready to jump in? Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Wait, Am I an Adult Now? This is Shelby Wildgust. And this is Savan Petrodo. And we have a lovely guest with us today. Guest, will you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Amy Zeidelman. And Amy is the founder of Zoom Tahini, right? That's how you say it? You got it. Zoom Foods is the name of the company. Zoom Foods. And I am so excited to talk all things food and tahini <laughs> and how this all began. But before we do that, Savan... We're going to get into our adulting moment of the week. Do you want to um, start? I can, go, I can go first. Okay, cool. Okay. All right. So um, it's come to my attention that my lease is coming to an end. Um, on your car. On my car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> Just making sure that we're clarifying here. <laughs> um, and of course, it had to happen right before the winter season hit. I have a very nice SUV. That would be great. For the winter time but my mileage limit is getting so close and i don't turn my lease in until the summertime which is awful oh no but luckily i have a very kind boyfriend who's letting me borrow his car because he has a work car that he drives around so he has like a personal car that he doesn't really use so he's letting me drive that around it's an older sedan so I just like part of me wishes I could be driving my SUV when it's snowing out, but at the same time, like mm. you know. In the future, would you lease again, or do you, would you buy next time? I've never leased a car. Out of mind for that reason. Yeah, I don't think I would just because of that. Or if I did, I would have to get like fifteen thousand miles a year instead of twelve. Mm-hmm. But then the, you're also paying more for the extra miles, mm-hmm. and I don't know. It's just like I don't think it's that worth it. Just probably better off buying something and not having to worry about it. I feel like leasing is good for somebody who likes a new shiny car and doesn't drive that much. Yeah, That's my husband. But I've been I was like <laughs> driving to New York every now and then, like a couple times a month for a few months, and then all these trips to Philly and like I don't know. It just ended up being more than I thought it was. Yeah. So cars in general are like one of those adulting things where you're like, oh my god, now I have to take care of my car, mm-hmm. and I'm the same way. Like with like not realizing how much things might cost in terms mm-hmm. of what you're getting yourself into, whether it's leasing or just having a car in general. Like I had to get new tires last week and oh, like yeah. that was a quick $800 that went out of my pocket <laughs> because of the car. Mm-hmm. I heard once that like one of the biggest financial catastrophes for people that puts them in debt is our car payments. Just mm-hmm. anything having to do with the car, the car breaking down, paying your lease. I mean, it, it's such a thing to take into consideration yeah. when you're building out your budget and this oh, was for sure this and is the first thing, car budget. i ever actually bought like all my other cars before this were like old cars that no payment just would drive it until it died and i don't know why i decided to buy one but i'm definitely going back to the alternatives so you'll be fine it's yeah. just one of those it's like just a thing. learning experiences yeah. and yeah like you were saying with budget it's like all those things that you just don't figure out until so you, you have, have to, to figure do it, it out. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so my adulting moment of this week, I have several. So I'm going to say two of them. First one is I got my first jury note, jury duty notice. <laughs> so I'm um, going to go in for that. I mean, secretly, I'm kind of hoping that's like a high profile case, but it's likely not going to be. Um, I'm a big crime junkie. And if it's like something really interesting, that could be really cool. You should tell them that when they interview you. Yeah. I'm a big crime junkie, so I'd be great. <laughs> Okay, I will. We'll see what happens. I'm probably going to be like, this girl's going to make up too many analogies. Yeah. And she's not going to be good. She can't be. She She'll can't vote be, you out. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's my first adulting moment. And then my second adulting moment is that I'm currently, as we're running this interview, drinking bone broth with collagen in it because I've heard that's really good for your skin. And, and you did say a couple weeks ago you wanted a new skin routine, right? Yeah, I haven't had a skin routine, like, ever. Oh, I don't have one either. And now that I'm turning, you know, late 20s, <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's time for me to actually start taking care of our biggest organ of our body, mm. which is our skin. Proud of skin. you. Thank you. Let us know how it goes. I will. Okay. All right, Amy, what's yours? My adulting moment of the week, if I can share two, one is personal. Um, my husband and I were just talking about how we really felt like adults because we have now actively decided to clean our dishes thoroughly every night. <laughs> we leave no dirty dishes in the sink because it's just a headache to have when you have a toddler that you're trying to feed breakfast in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's nice to have as many pots and pans available for the next day. And my professional one was today, literally a few, like an hour ago, I just had to fire somebody. Oh. I had to fire our intern. Um, she's a lovely girl, but I don't think she was ready for the adulting life yet. Um, mm -hmm. And so it just wasn't a good fit. You know, you want interns to add value to your company, uh, to help your team out where we already have on a small team a lot of, you know, responsibilities and managing somebody that's not easy to manage is just a not working for a small team so I had to let her go it must be a hard thing to do it was and we've only we've had to fire two people before and that was very hard and I was and I was much less professional about the last two times I definitely like cried while I was had to fire them but this time I really had clarity on the subject and, yeah. uh, and it went fine so well, that's good yeah I mean that's a big growth period for you too because I can't imagine being on the other end of the stick having my boss cry as she's fired <laughs> well the last two times they were like more our peers and working with us and it just wasn't the right fit for the company at the stage that we were in right this was like back our very first year of business our like mm -hmm. second or third year of business um and it was just emotionally just draining just everything going on in, in a startup company uh, but no now i don't cry when i'm gonna fire somebody <laughs> and hopefully don't need to fire more people so seriously <laughs> but it's That's part scary. of the job totally is. yeah totally yeah is. So I know we spoke on the phone a little bit about your story and how you got started. And it's really interesting to me because my family has a background in Middle Eastern food and my dad's from Israel. So just the subject of tahini interested me in general. So I definitely wanna get into your story and kind of take us back to before the start of Zoom a little bit, like when you were in college or just starting to figure out what you wanted to do mm -hmm. and um, what your direction was at that point. Yeah, like what was your major and then like what was that first little inkling of like, I think I want to start something from scratch. It had nothing to do with me. Uh, I was a comm major at University okay. of Delaware, which go Blue Hens. Go Blue Hens. This is the first time. Well, no, it's not the first time. I was like, this is the first time I've ever had a, a fellow Blue Hen, but that's not true. I think, you, yeah, it's only been one or two other ones. Yeah, so. it's usually this is a rare 
Great moment. Was like, go Owls. And right. the other person's like, yeah. We're in <laughs> Philadelphia and everybody here is from Philly and, and went Temple. to school in Philly. And, and, and. Yeah. Anyway, go Blue Hens. Go Blue Hens. Um, and I was not adulting. I was a pretty big partier if uh some could even actually not even big partier i was a huge stoner i just like really did not have much direction in life uh graduated a semester early luckily because of ud's great like winter and summer programs and was um doing part-time work as a customer service agent for a solar panel installation company wow yes riveting work especially (laughs) after i signed on to learn that they were six months behind schedule so none of the customers that i were talking about Talking to were happy or thrilled, and I had zero experience. And my oldest sister, Shelby, who studied business, was much more professional and adulting her whole life because she's the oldest of the three girls. I'm the youngest, and I don't know if you guys do. You guys have siblings? I do. Oh, yeah, you both do. I'm the youngest. Do you also. fall into birth order like stereotypes? Well, I have a really weird setup. Okay. My sister's 49 years old. I see. So yeah. much older. So yeah. a little different. You are the youngest. I have big age gaps too. Also, like big, big my age middle gaps. sister's 14 years older, and then my oldest is 21 years older than me. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So we're definitely the babies of the family. That's oh, yeah. so interesting. Yeah. And now you guys are like connected because normally those kinds of age gaps don't happen in families like that mm-hmm. but between me and my oldest sister is just four years between me and my middle sister is just 15 months oh, that's nice. and we have like stereotypical birth order you know <laughs> all that good stuff um and so Shelby the responsible one went to business school was living in Israel for the year and my middle sister Jackie has been living in Israel since 2008 mm. And Shelby, when she met Jackie's then boyfriend, now husband Omri, uh, learned that Omri was in the tahini industry. And we, you know, knew tahini from an, it being an ingredient in hummus, as most Americans do, um, a little bit in terms of a sauce on falafel, but really didn't understand how he had a business like just about tahini. And when Shelby tasted the tahini that he was distributing, she realized that it was way different than any tahini we were really working with or had access to in the United States. Mm. And so. So, you know, her being a business brain just started wondering, you know, what tahini is available? What do American consumers know about it? So she called me, probably smoking a joint, like in my room at University (laughs) of Delaware. And she was like, I need you to do market research. And I was like, what's market research? Because I did not study business. She's like, oh my God, you're so dumb. No, love my sister. She said, just go to the store, buy every tahini that you can find, write down your you know, opinions on the label, how much it costs, what it tastes like. And this is how we started to inform where the market stood on tahini. And what we found was that there were no interesting tahini brands, that none of the tahini available tasted good. And the real censure was that if people were familiar with tahini, which most people were not, they were only using it to make hummus. Mm -hmm. And in Israel, as you might experience from your family's cuisine and maybe home recipes, they use tahini for everything from baked goods to an ingredient in smoothies. I mean, they literally think it's God's gift to mankind. Uh, (laughs) The ingredient is extremely delicious. It's immensely nutritious. It's one of the highest sources of protein, calcium, iron. And so as we were just, you know, learning more about this from our new family in Israel, we realized, you know, I think the American market would be interested in a good tahini product. So, you know, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, because growing up, my father would always buy it and it would be in the house, but I hated it. Mm -hmm. It was awful. Like I never liked it. I always liked hummus or, you know, other things a lot better. And, um, so what you're saying like definitely resonates with me because I I never honestly liked it before 
And that's amazing because that's you coming from an Israeli heritage, right? Most Americans had never heard of tahini. Yeah, I mean, my only experience with tahini was when I was trying to make my own homemade hummus. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I would never do that again because <laughs> it was, turned out horrible. And also tahini is kind of expensive too. It could be a little expensive. It's pretty comparable to other nut butters, which is really what we yeah, set out to do. Yeah. We set out to take tahini out of the international aisle and into the nut butter category, because mm. that's really where it can live. It's a substitute for peanut butter. It can be used instead of almond butter. I mean, that's where we thought that Americans could best relate to it. Yeah. And so we worked that into our branding and our messaging and the way that we educated Americans about tahini because it really was an unknown category at the time. So what wow. exactly is tahini? Great question. Tahini is a paste. It's an ingredient made from 100% roasted and pressed sesame seeds. Okay. So I like to describe it as thicker than olive oil and thinner than peanut butter, but can be used for both in savory and sweet recipes. Hmm. So it's a fat ingredient. You can use it instead of dairy in recipes, instead of butter in recipes, instead of oil, nut hmm. butters. It really is this funky ingredient that once you start working with it, using it in your kitchen more, you realize you can almost put a little bit into everything. Yeah. So it's really inspiring. I know like I incorporate it literally into breakfast, lunch, and dinner for myself and my family. Well, I'm excited wow. to do that. Yeah. Well, you well, have I'm some, really excited so to try yours. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. And yeah. I brought some recipe cards too because that's really the key here was, you know, people had access to tahini. Granted, it wasn't the greatest tahini, but they didn't know what to do with it. They only used it to make hummus. Yeah. And then they sat in the back of their fridge and they threw it away six months later. And we're really passionate about getting people to incorporate tahini into more of their culinary experiences because it is so nutritious, you know. I didn't even know it was supposed to be refrigerated. So if that's the case, then I... <laughs> it does not have oh, to okay. be. It's like a nut butter. <laughs> I was like, I should probably throw away any tahini out of my cupboard <laughs> at this point. So this is so fascinating because... I mean, there's so many things that I'm hearing from you that are, I want to dig into from like an adulting standpoint, mm -hmm. because I always love when we hear stories from people that, I don't want to say fall into industries, but end up in a place where they never imagined themselves. I think that's an important lesson that young adults can learn is that like, you just have to be open-minded and flexible mm -hmm. with where you might go because you might end up in a place that you never imagined yourself, but it could be the best decision that you've ever made. Yeah. So can we go back to like when you were kind of going down that pathway of like, oh shit, like this is a tahini business that we're kind of starting. Yeah. Am I ready to do that? Do I want to do that? Like what were those things going through your mind? I would say we really had to make that decision or I at least came into this like awareness that I had a tahini company probably three years into the business. Like I just kind of went down this track. I mean, I resisted adulting wholeheartedly. After I graduated college and we decided to start this business, I quit my job because I was like, this isn't going anywhere. And I decided to live in Israel for the year. I really wanted to understand the culture better. I wanted to be closer to my sister. My best friend was living there at the time. So I taught English for a year. Uh, but, the, but the teaching was definitely like more of a volunteer basis. And I spent the whole year partying. I'm not going <laughs> uh, There's a phenomenon in Israel called nature parties or misibot teva, where they like very obscurely share a space where they're going to just set up a DJ and Israelis are going to come and like <laughs> rave all night long. It's about like 20 hours total. Oh, that's and not so amazing. it was so fun. <laughs> it really just had one of the most fun years of my life living in Israel that year. But I also started like understanding tahini and even kind of taking it into a new place where it wasn't in Israel yet. Hmm. Um, 
So I resisted. And when I came home, I just jumped into that market research. I started, you know, making a list of all the places that could possibly, quote unquote, buy our tahini. I started putting the little steps together to bring our first import over. I started meeting with chefs to to hand out samples. And I just went through these motions that felt really natural to me. Mm. And before I knew it, like we started having revenue and things started happening um, in terms of, you know, people expecting to keep having it. And once people have expectations, about me or really maybe anybody can relate to this in terms of like your business it it's like the thing that kind of keeps you going because if nobody else is invested into it it's so easy just to like turn it off yeah that's the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur especially when you're doing it solo at first my sisters and I both my sisters both had real jobs so I was the only one that kind of jumped into zoom to see if we could get it off the ground before they decided to join the company and I just needed to take it like one step out of the time at a time. And I was the only one holding myself accountable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that you can relate to like entrepreneurship or also adulting, which is when you're an adult, like no one's going to do it for you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like you need to set your target. You need to implement the steps and you just need to start putting one. F- that's how I feel every day. It's like, OK, yeah. just do the next thing that you think is right. Do the next thing that you think is right. At some point when we become adults, like people stop telling you what to do and you just need to decide for yourself. So I was kind of going through that personal transition of becoming an adult because the idea for Zoom, we got our first import um, right the week I turned 24 and now I'm 30. And so I feel like I've just had to like grow into an adult while Mm -hmm. also building a business. And that's been one of my hardest challenges, really. Wow. Oh, my God. All of that is so great. And it reminds me a lot of some conversations Shelby and I have had in the past about taking the actions, but not necessarily like having this big carrot at the end, like thinking about the result too much. And just like you said, one foot in front of the other and taking those little actions to get you to the next spot. Yeah, for sure. I didn't even realize like what having a business meant. So I just was doing exactly. And then one day I I looked up and like, we had a lot of customers or we started to get a lot of press or people had these expectations. I, you know, the reality also really set in for me just a year ago because we went through this terrible trauma with the company where we had to implement a recall. And that was really devastating. But that's where you realize there, you know, what you've built, who relies on you, who supports you. And that really like pushed us to take Zoom to the next level. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about that that point? Well, two things. I'm curious about the first import that you got. Like, what mm-hmm. was the feeling like? And then that point of, oh, man, this sucks when you had to do that recall. Oh, yeah, I will not never forget when we got the first import. I was actually... Um, I had to go, of course, like timing never works out. I had booked a trip to visit a friend of mine down in Texas. He was in the army, a friend of mine from college. I hadn't seen him in a while. So I just went down to visit him. And lo and behold, like our first import shows up. So luckily, Omri, our brother-in-law from Israel, was in town helping me to just kind of like lay our foundation and get things going. And he received it. And I just got this video of like a truck pulling up to a loading dock. And, um, and then cutting the bolt so everything stays locked to like be safe uh, while mm-hmm. you're shipping internationally. And then like opening it up and there were 10 pallets. It sounds like a lot, but it's like literally not a lot of product at all. Just sitting there and I was sitting in the airport and I just started crying. I was like sitting at a bar and this very sweet bartender was like, what's wrong, honey? And I was like, no, these are happy tears. I just started a business and we got the first product in and like, I just can't even believe what's happening. So it was so, I mean, I think every stage of that has been 
really like raw for me. It's been like really overwhelming and, but also just like really intoxicatingly exciting. And so it's a lot of mixed emotions from that first import. The recall was like the most, um, hands-on thing and like dramatic thing that I've ever had to do. I was also about like four months postpartum. Mm -hmm. So I was like still breastfeeding. I was so stressed. I wasn't eating. I like lost my breast milk supply. I mean, everything that like could have been just the hardest thing ever was, but our clients and our partners really stuck with us. They understood. I mean, we just kind of hunkered down. And um, if I was easing back into full time at Zoom, like this is what just like threw me back into it after having Henry, my son. But um, it was the hardest thing that we've ever had to execute. I mean, our product was always safe. We do extra testing over and beyond even like culinary standards um, to make sure that there's no contamination in the product. But just because of like a mishap with the manufacturer and some other tahini that they made for somebody else, we were involved in this recall. And actually it was a double-edged sword because we had built our brand to be so strong and so relatable to the American market. When the press was talking about this recall, they were always mentioning Zoom first, like as the only brand, even though it wasn't our tahini that had a problem. And so it was just, um, it was just a really hard time. But it reminds you, you know, that like there are people that rely on you, whether it's your customers, whether it's your staff, just got to stay strong, like put on a brave face, answer the questions, um, communicate with people directly. I mean, it really caused us to look internally like at our values and at the way that we want to have relationships with our customers and just like dig into that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like anyone who's starting a business has a recall moment, whether or not Mm -hmm. it's like a physical recall. But I think that there's going to be those trials and tribulations and through that are what come some of the greatest lessons that, you know, as a business owner, you learn and hopefully you don't repeat again, Right. but that's what makes you stronger when the storm is hitting. I'd like to hear from you about creating a family business mm-hmm. because in my life, I know my sister and I, and there's a huge age gap there, but even if her and I were to start a business together, like we would, there would be conflict just naturally um, based on like our personalities and our strong headedness. And so in your experience, kind of going after this amazing dream with your siblings, how was that? And what was that first couple of years like? Well, I joke, but it definitely helped that the middle Jackie lived in Israel. I mean, that was like a good space for all of us to kind of like, you know, come to ourselves and our own personalities, especially since she and I were only 15 months apart. But the best thing about what happened with me and my sisters are is twofold. One is we're really different. I mean, people think we're triplets. We have very similar, almost, I would say, more complementary personalities than like exact same personalities, but we all really have these different skills and education backgrounds to help us take these different roles within the business. So Shelby studied business in college and has really led the strategy and the business development. Jackie, who studied um, international conflict resolution or something in Israel and environmental studies is really like the heart of the company. She maintains all the relationships with our manufacturers and is the one that really guides us kind of back to the fields and where the sesame grows in Ethiopia. And then I studied communication. We joke like I just like to talk. So all I had to do was go talk to people about Zoom foods. And so it was really, it didn't create a lot of drama. 
trauma for us or conflict. We also grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Mm. Our mom had her own business. Our dad had his own business. And so business and family always mixed, but we also knew how to set boundaries to like kind of, you know, create that space. Um, we joke, I mean, our parents were very deliberate. They, we had to share a computer growing up. We had to share a bathroom growing up. We had two sinks in there, but still, like you can imagine, that was yeah. not easy for mm -hmm. three girls four years apart. And I think that that really instilled in us this, um, you know, way to work together that maybe some other siblings don't have manipulated for them. But we're really lucky. We've um, we've kind of taken this in stride and have always put our family and ourselves first and supported each other through the hard times, especially. Um, my sisters have both had had two kids. I've had one kid. Maternity leave is like something real in a small business. And my oldest sister is expecting her third kid wow. actually just in a couple weeks. And so um, we just always put family first. We're very lucky and strange. We're a really close and relatively like healthy family structure. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. That's really valuable. So along those same lines, I'm, I'm really curious what it's like starting a family in addition to running a business, like how does that all work? That's a really great question. Uh, like we talked about, it's just like one day at a time. I mean, it's awesome to have great partners. Uh, my husband, Darren, is incredible. Shelby's husband, Dan, Omri, Jackie's husband, you know, they've supported us through this and understood when we need to kind of like dig into the business or spend, you know, and then us being family, we understand when one of us needs to step away to focus on the family. Um, but having a business is like having a baby. So it was kind of like it was my second child. Sorry, having Henry was my second child and Sum Foods was my first child. And around the time I started Sum, I also got a puppy. So oh I was my just goodness. like really tumultuous in my mid-20s. But it is it, it gave a new perspective to the business when my sister started having babies because I was like the one to round out coming in third. And it made us realize that like this is something that would hopefully like make our kids really proud, you know, or something that they'd be excited to share about with their friends. Although like knowing kids, they probably won't end up giving a shit at all. <laughs> um, but it just kind of gave this new perspective to like being at work and working and what it means to be home with your family. Like having kids just, it really changes everything. It made us realize what was really important when something goes wrong, it's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? Like people are still alive and healthy and it just, it does give a lot of new perspective to everything. Um, but it's hard, you know, I, I spend a lot of time away from my son, um, not as much as other people for sure, but more than sometimes I'd like to, but it's okay. You know, you have a strong community around you, get good care for them and they end up thriving, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I love to hear that. And I also wanted to ask you, going back to the business in itself. So tahini in my mind, which I don't, I don't have much knowledge on tahini and I'm really excited to get more. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to get more educated on it, but was it, were you at any point nervous about building a business that surrounded one product or did you always have this envision of like, okay, we can do so much with this tahini and there can be so many different types of products that we sell in the store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've always kind of dealt with that within our business development and strategy. Um, I would say at this point, 
over 90% of our revenue. And we do have two other products now. About a year in, in order to really um, educate consumers about why tahini should be in the nut butter category instead of the international aisle, we developed a chocolate spread. So it's like our version of Nutella, but tahini's the soul of it. It's just two ingredients. It's less than half the amount of sugar of Nutella. We really just created this chocolate spread that we wanted like as our own consumers. Um, and then we, um, this past year, we started selling Ceylon, which is a date syrup from Israel. It's a popular alternative to honey, agave, or maple syrup. It's a great alternative sweetener that's like really popular for granola or sweetening, baked goods, teas, really fun to have. Um, but still 90% of our revenue comes just from tahini. And it really shows, to your point, like that opportunity for providing a new product that has such versatility. Mm-hmm. Um it scares us a lot, you know, because I think that tahini has, or just selling one product leaves yourself open to a lot of competition, which is now happening in the market. Now that tahini is more of an interesting pantry item for Americans, more people are starting tahini businesses. And that's really caused us to reflect on what differentiates us, how we can provide the best tahini to the market possible, and always kind of has our wheels turning. But uh, we also really thrive by focusing on one thing at a time. And so it made it a lot easier to just Mm -hmm. like sell one product. Yeah, I think that's a good lesson to learn. Like if anyone out there listening who's an entrepreneur or wants to be an entrepreneur and wants to figure out, okay, what is that idea going to be? I think oftentimes we talk ourselves out of things because we're like, well, that's already been done before. Mm -hmm. Or I can't just sell one product. Like how am I going to diversify myself and all Mm -hmm. these different questions. But there's a really good quote, and I ne- can never remember who actually said this quote. It's either Martin Luther King or Albert Einstein or, uh, I don't know, One some of those historical guys. figure. <laughs> those really smart people. Yeah, really smart, smart. smart person with a lot of quotes out there right. floating in the, in the world. <laughs> but the, the quote is, what makes an idea sticky is either a new idea packaged in an old way or an old idea packaged in a new way. Mm. And tahini is an old idea, yeah. right? It's 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 a common ingredient in a lot of parts of the world yes but what you're doing is you're packaging it in a new way with the education component and even just the taste component and and the care and the story Mm -hmm. and so I think that is something really valuable that you're doing and that can that can show why one product can work so well yeah and it also helps in how challenging entrepreneurship is to know what you want to talk about with people. I mean, it it became challenging, I'd say like four or five years into it, when I was going back, say, to like a market that I've been selling tahini in for a couple years now, and me going back saying, oh, I still just sell tahini, you know, like what is there to talk about? And that's what kind of really pushed us to figure out if we wanted to sell Ceylon or, or things like that. And we've evaluated and, and, and made a lot of um, changes to how we're approaching our product diversification just based off of data and our experiences. But it was really it was really helpful for a long time. And then at a certain point, you do need to grow beyond that one product, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and understanding what direction we should go in has been a big challenge for me and my sisters. But uh, I think we're well on our way and, and we're comfortable being patient to make sure that we're making the right decision. So when you were doing that initial market research, what is it about your tahini that really does differentiate you guys from all the other tahinis that you had tasted what like 
specifically where you mentioned they're from mm-hmm. sesame seeds, correct? Yes, exactly. Where they're sourced. Exactly. And, like, what makes that so different? So just like coffee or wine, where the sesame seeds grow produces a different flavor profile, quality, consistency. And the sesame seeds from Ethiopia have really emerged in the last decade as being the best sesame seeds for pressing into tahini specifically. Mm-hmm. It's called white humera sesame, and it can grow in other parts of the world. But when it grows in Ethiopia, it really creates this plump seed that is ideal for pressing into tahini. So all of white humera that's sold out of the humera region of Ethiopia is sold exclusively for tahini production. It doesn't get made into sesame oil or put into packs of sesame seeds or topping our burger buns or sushi rolls. It's really only for tahini. And what we noticed was that no other tahini company in the United States was talking about where they were sourcing their seeds from. They weren't talking about what ingredients were in their tahini, whether there was added oil or maybe a little bit of salt. Um, And it was also really a testament to the manufacturing processes, which is why we've stuck with manufacturers in Israel for so long. They really create phenomenal tahini. Um, And we, you know, we just wanted to, you know, as much as our product would differentiate us, we wanted our our business practices to differentiate us. You know, we really found that most tahinis available in the market were not being marketed to American consumers the way they should have been. No one was taking that, you know, kind of um, step to provide recipes, to teach people how to use it for more than just hummus, to even explain that it was made from sesame seeds. Mm -hmm. Like all of that was so ambiguous back in 2011 when we had this idea. So um, we really want the product to differentiate us, but also the way that we conduct our business and, you know, connect with our customers and partners to differentiate us also. So how did the education part start for your business? Was it immediate or did it take some time to build up that form of education? Oh man, it's still going, but it was immediate. I mean, it was our number one priority out of the gate. So I would pop up whether a small co-op would take us in or we kind of finagled our way into some local farmers markets and we would just hand out samples and teach people about what it was. I mean, we still start every opportunity to sample with, are you familiar with tahini? Mm -hmm. Because probably at this point, still six out of 10 people will say no. And so our follow-up question is always, well, do you like hummus? And most people say yes. And so that's really our conduit to people understanding the ingredient. But it still still has a lot of room to grow. I mean, similar with the trajections of hummus's popularity, you know, it's clearly, it's going to start on the coast, but the opportunity is making it through all of mainstream America, right? It is an ingredient that lots of people can incorporate into their cooking at home. Uh, We have a particular passion for people with young kids, whether it's new mothers because of the... nutritional profile or you know you know incorporating it into young kids foods because it's so nutritionally dense and so we just see a lot of opportunity for it but the consumer education is still our number one thing so whether it's important in person or digitally we're providing a lot of facts about tahini um, a lot of recipes especially about tahini so you'll see um, in your guys' little kits that there are some recipe cards so we send those out with orders or when we're demoing in person or really that's our main piece of marketing collateral is just encouraging people to try to use it in a new way. Cool. I love that. That's really great. I want to hear a little bit more about that startup phase, like the I, the idea of like getting out and getting your product in the hands of people because you hear it so often. It's like that when you're selling a product that people use, having them actually touch it, feel it, taste it, see it, engage all the senses mm-hmm. is so 
important. Where did you start with that? Like, was it, was that farmer's markets first or was it at co-ops or like, if, I'm just, I'm thinking about for somebody out there who might have a product idea, like a food product idea, what would advice would you give to them as to where to start? So I just started by making a list of all of the grocery stores. I mean, big box stores to like the smallest co-ops, restaurants that I thought would use our tahini, everything from a falafel shop to me coming from, you know, from living in Israel for the year and seeing it in smoothie bars. I like targeted all these smoothie shops, ice cream stores. I just knew that tahini could be in every restaurant on every menu. And I started to just knock on doors. I mean, I literally was like a traveling salesperson talking about buying a car. One of the first things I did right when we, when I started Zoom in 2013 or got our first import was I bought a Prius V. It's their wagon (laughs) because it can fit a lot of tahini in it. And I knew that I would be driving from DC to New York you know, um, and with Philly as my home base, like on the daily. And so I would just, um, choose an area. I remember my first sales trip. I was living with my aunt and uncle when I first moved back to the States from Israel to start Zoom and they live in the suburbs. And I just, it's funny cause I ended up living there, but I, I chose Northern Liberties as like the first little neighborhood. And so I wrote down every single, um, restaurant's name and grocery store's name. I found the information online of who the owner was or the manager or the chef's name. And I would literally just knock on the door and say, will you try my tahini? And most people were like, absolutely not. You know, why would we try tahini? Tahini is gross. We like only use it to make hummus and that's it. I said, no, please just try my tahini. And I really just replicated that. It was through every neighborhood of Philadelphia and then in New York City and in D.C. And eventually as we started growing, I did trips, I I think in 2016, when um, I really started to hit the ground, I went to 15 cities that year and would just make a list of eventually we really found our knack in the restaurant industry and so by by trying everything at first like the falafel shops and the smoothie shops and the ice cream shops and hearing no from like 90 percent of people you realize like oh we've got to start targeting people that look like the 10 percent of the few people that are actually saying yes Mm. and so it really started to refine our strategy into focusing on restaurants which is what we did for about the past three years of the business and yeah, I would just make a list of, you know, 20 or 30 restaurants and put a bunch of tahini in my in my rolly bag and start walking around. So wow. how did you deal with the rejection? <laughs> I just said, thanks so much. And I knew that a no meant like not now. I just knew like somebody's going to hold this and think about it at another time or when they do need tahini, they're going to choose soon. And that was all I cared about was just if somebody needed tahini and cared about quality tahini, that they knew that Zoom was out there, that they didn't think that like, oh, all tahini sucks. And so it was fine for me. You know, I didn't, now the rejection's harder because there's so much more pressure to like grow the revenue. At first it was, it all just felt like a game. You know, it felt like make-believe for a little while. I didn't understand the consequences because we didn't have any employees, you know? We didn't have this or that or the rent to pay at our warehouse or anything like that. It was just it felt fun for me. I don't know. And that's why I guess maybe it didn't realize, like I didn't realize I was starting a business for so long because I was just going through these motions and it felt very natural and there weren't dire consequences. And it was only like once the business was up and running that everything felt much more real. So during wow. that time period, which I, I just love that story. That's really, yeah, that's amazing. Really, really amazing. Literally like a rolly bag. <laughs> I can imagine. Like that's so cool. Um, But during that time, what were you doing as a source of income? 
We created a very small stipend for me um, when we put a little bit of capital to invest into the company. And so I was bringing in um, a very little bit. I'm practically bringing in the same now. So it really doesn't matter, <laughs> but that's entrepreneurship for you. Um, but I lived with my aunt and uncle and they didn't charge me rent. And I um, had savings from when I did work and I just didn't need a lot, you know? I kind of had grown out of my partying phase and I was living in the suburbs and I didn't feel the need to go out and drink or spend money on this or that. That's why I bought myself a little puppy to entertain me. <laughs> and I just like, just focused on Zoom. So, um, you know, I, I, I definitely was fortunate that I didn't need more income in order to survive, which most people 100% do. I was very comfortable and my family supported me a lot. Um, but you also like, you, you don't need a lot to get going or I would say I 100% could have had a part-time job while I was growing Zoom in the first couple of years. So if I needed supplemental income, I, I probably could have manipulated that as well. But I was lucky, you know, I could just live on very little, yeah, um, which made it a lot easier. Totally, totally. I, I, hmm. I can see that. So did I see online <laughs> that you won or was nominated or I don't know, I guess it's an award? But you were on, on Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2018. Yep. So I was on Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2018 for the food and beverage category. Tell Congratulations. Us about that. Me That's and Jackie. Because so cool. Jackie was still 29 at the time. Shelby yeah. was over 30. She's four years oh. older than me. So she missed out. Oh, um, <laughs> it was really exciting. You know, um, we've, we've gained some really great friends and partners through the industry. And a couple people that had won the year before nominated Zoom Foods and and um, and we also kind of like filled out that paperwork and it, it was an intention that we made at the beginning of that year like wow I'm 28 about to be 29 like let's get on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and and once we set out an intention or like we write something down or we say it out loud you start to feel you know that momentum I think going and that's been something that we've been very intentional about once we realized that it works was like if you have a goal write it down say it out loud tell people I mean the more people that know like the more accountable they're going to hold you to it right or maybe the more motivation you'll have because you don't want to mess it up so um, that was a really exciting time but uh, like most things it it's not that I was anticlimactic but I was in Miami and I was working so I was like I was in a car with a distributor rep just like driving around in you know some shitty sedan of somebody that I didn't know going to really terrible leads they just like they brought me to like a boating catering company. Huh. I guess it's a very Miami thing to do, but I knew these people were not going to buy tahini. I was feeling really frustrated. And all of a sudden I get this email and I'm like, I'm sitting next to a woman who does not care about me or my business. You know what I mean? And I still needed to go in and meet with somebody that had no interest in buying my product. And it kept it all like really in perspective for me. A lot of these press things can be really exciting and they mean so much and they really do kind of like stimulate, you know, um, I think the momentum and like the, the passion for the company, but at the end of the day, like they also don't mean much if you're not out there working really hard to grow your business. And so it was this like very strange to me. I was alone. I wasn't with my team. I wasn't with my husband. Like nobody was there to celebrate with me. I was just like in Miami working, like hating doing what I was doing for the second that I was doing it. And it just had this like very kind of like mixed reaction for me, but it was so cool. I mean, um, when everything kind of comes to fruition, it ended up being, um, I guess later into 2018, it must have been October or something. And so I found out right when I was pregnant 
which was very exciting. But when the Forbes conference happened, Henry was like three months old or something. And I just, I flew to Boston for the day and I was pumping in the airport and the conference didn't have anywhere for me to pump or store my milk. And it was all just like, it's always, <laughs> there's positive and negative to anything. You yeah. know, it's, and I probably posted on Instagram, like this is the best day ever. But like, it was also a really hard day because I came home and in the airport, I had to dump all the milk that I pumped. And so like, there are just all these these weird juxtapositions happening every day where something can be glamorous or the business is doing well, but it's just, it's just hard. You know, there's still real life going on. And it I keeps have, you in check of yeah. Like yeah. what's most important, which is the action mm-hmm. that keeps the business running. For sure. And I love that you're so honest about that too, because a lot of times you see all the smoke and mirrors of people from the outside, like yeah. what's really great that's happening, but you mm-hmm. don't always hear about the other side of it and all the other things you have to deal with. Yeah, and I've, and we've made a conscious effort. You know, I guess when you create a brand or you create this the social media, like we didn't want to be one of those companies that was like pointing out everything terrible happening because it's it just wasn't the vibe that we were trying to put out. You know, we really just want people to be excited about tahini, focus on consumer education. And so we're not ones to like put, uh, you know, what some small businesses do, which is like what's so hard or what's going wrong um, out into the into the world. But it, social media or like all of the fluff is always something that's very interesting. Like when you run into friends and be like, wow, you're killing it. I just saw you mentioned in food and wine or bone appetite and like all these things i'm like yeah those things are great but like also we're still dealing with the you know maybe six months ago we're still dealing with the repercussions of the recall like still real work is going on and maybe you know bringing this back to the idea of adulting like that is adulting in a nutshell is like things can be really great or they can seem really great but it's still really hard and you need to just do what needs to be done every single day and sometimes you just like don't want to do anything you know (laughs) i want to be back in my college room like smoking weed all day like come on adulting and having a business is really hard but it's really fun yeah there is so much you just said that was really valuable and i think one of the things that young adults and I, i see it in some of the coaching clients that i have where they're stuck on social media comparing themselves to everyone and I mean, I try not to make my social media highlight reel. Like, I try to shed light on the real things that are happening mm-hmm. in my life. But I think there's so much of that out there, of the highlight reel. Yeah. It's easy to be like, wow, she's killing it. Like, wow, she's an overnight success. But they don't see the three, five, ten years. They don't see you in your rolly bag right. knocking on the doors, <laughs> having people say no. Or, like, the repercussions of the recall. Yeah. And it's it's – I love that message of, like, hey – you know, there's the glamour, but there's also, if not more of the hard work. The work, mm-hmm. for sure. I know we're running a little bit on time, but I do have a question that I've been wanting to ask, which is you mentioned in the beginning when you started Zoom, it felt like a game. Yeah. And then at some point you started realizing that there was more at stake. What was that turning point for you? I think that turning point was when um, we started hiring people and having full-time employees and knowing that like we were contributing to people's livelihood I it just made me not want to give up you know if it was just me and my sisters if 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 something got too hard or you know if if something wasn't going to shape up right it's really easy to kind of like let it go and 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 deal with the consequences because it only you know pertains to you but once we started having employees I just felt 
really motivated to just work through all the hard times or to go on that one trip that I didn't want to go on, you know, to do the sales or, or this or that. Because um, when other people rely on you, it just kind of, it, that's what lights a fire under me. And I love our team. I love the fact that we're contributing to the economy in Philadelphia. You know, I love the fact that we sell a tangible product that actually affects people's lives, whether it's the person at home whose son has nut allergies or the chef who really cares about putting good ingredients into their food for their customers. Like that really inspires me. And so I think it was, and, and we've only really had our full-time staff for the past, and the company's almost seven years old. So like for the past three years, really. And so that is what I think kind of took me into understanding like, wow, this is a real thing and, and other people are invested into it. Hmm. That's cool. really cool. I'm sure you're a great boss. I get, uh, I get the feel that like you really, truly, truly, truly care about your people, the vision, the product, the just everything that goes on in your business. Like you, you really care, and that's that's awesome. Well, I appreciate that, and yeah, I try really hard, and we've been very transparent with the people that have you know that have worked with us. That like we're all learning here. I mean, I had no experience being a boss or running a business or hiring people or firing people or doing reviews. You know what I mean? Like bear with me and, and manage up. Tell me when I could be doing something better. We were always accepting of that. Um, but I think just, you know, having some perspective that not, nothing's gonna be perfect is just a good approach to life. And as long as you communicate to that to people and manage people's expectations, I mean, I'm obsessed with interpersonal communication and it's really all about just managing expectations mm -hmm. and there'll be a lot less drama or conflict in people's lives. Very true. Amazing. Yeah. Very true. Okay. So our final question for you, mm -hmm. knowing what you know now and looking back at, let's say like your 18, 19, 20 year old self, what advice would you give her? Oh man. Don't smoke so much weed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I would tell her to be open to any opportunity and to, I, I think you guys really nailed it, which is a philosophy that I didn't realize like when I went into it, that like you don't need to know exactly where you're going. You just need to put in the hard work to to just keep moving. You know what I mean? Um, I, I felt a lot of pressure when I was younger to like um, live up to, you know, whatever society like thought that you should become you know I came out of a private school in Maryland and my sisters are really brilliant and my parents are super successful and so I just but I never knew what I wanted to do you know um, and so I would just tell that person to just be patient and to try hard you know the the best thing you can do is just try your hardest so mm -hmm. and it can work out so great mm -hmm. I don't know this whole interview is just like warmed my heart like yeah, I don't know like, I really enjoy this so fun so. I love connecting with people. I'm so glad that we got to sit down together. And I love this. I wish that podcasts and these kinds of advice pieces also existed for my 18-year-old self. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because we just did, there's so much more information out there today than even, we're on that cusp of the change of technology and information sharing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we grew up without it. So right. it's different yeah. now. Totally is. Agreed. Yeah. So where can people find Zoom, find you, find all the things about what we just talked about? Well, thank you. Well, um, you can find Zoom on ZoomFoods.com. So that's S as in Sam, 
O-O-M as in mom and foods, plural. Um, we're also sold on Amazon. Uh, we're in stores, especially in the Mid-Atlantic or South Jersey or through New York, uh, Whole Foods, Moms, a lot of independent markets too. I just re-engaged on Instagram after like a six-month hiatus. <laughs> and so my name, Amy Zeidelman, is how you can find me on Instagram. And yeah, also connect with Zoom Foods online because they put up a lot better content. We put up a lot better content than I do personally. And that's at Zoom Foods. Cool. And we'll link all that in the description of the episode. Awesome. Um, so thanks again for joining us. And guys, if you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating or review. Um, like us on Instagram and follow along with what else we're doing. All the things. All, all the things. things. All the things. <laughs> Have a great day, morning, night, whatever time you're listening to this episode, and we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.